Turning to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk this morning, that uh, minor prophet that is tucked away in the closing portion of the Old Testament. I was asked this week, do you pronounce it Habakkuk like I did last Sunday, or Habakkuk? And I said, I don't know. But I suppose if you're hungry, you might pronounce it the way one of my kids did in the truck on the way to church this morning, as Habakkuk. Uh, but it is a little prophet, it's a minor prophet tucked away there in the closing section of the Old Testament. Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who match through the breath, who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At the kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Some Christians wrongly believe that godly people do not or should not experience negative emotions. Anxiety, depression, fear, deep grief, and others like these are always sinful and therefore feelings for which we should be ashamed to experience. But that idea is false. The chief testimony against this false belief is Scripture itself. 
Not only does Scripture contain examples of godly people who experienced negative emotions while they lived by faith in this broken world, but many parts of Scripture itself are expressions of these negative emotions for which the godly are not rebuked. The book of Habakkuk is one such part of Scripture. As we learned last week, this minor prophet's book is a lament. And there are many laments in the Bible. In fact, Josiah has chosen a lament psalm for us to sing at the end of this sermon. But what is a lament? Well, a lament is an expression of grief and sorrow to God. It's, it's a way of taking your pain to God in prayer. To lament is to put verbal expression to that hurt that consumes you. A lament is a complaint to God, but not about God. A lament is a longing of the heart for God to act when it seems like he has gone silent and years and years and years have gone by and there does not appear to be any answer in sight. Therefore, lament is an act of faith. It's an act of faith because God uses our pain to draw us to him. He is the only one who can help us. So our big idea this morning is this. Biblical faith requires us to trust in the character of God even when his hand of providence is invisible. We cannot see how and when God is at work. And so we cling by faith to the character of God. We cling to who God is. And he is unchanging. When our heart is grieved by the pain we experience in this fallen world, we give voice to our sorrow by crying out to God. When our spirit is vexed by wickedness and the ways that sin hurts people's souls and our relationships, we cry out to God. We say, why, God? How long, oh God, when will you intervene? When will you see my plight and intercede for me or intervene for me? Lament is an act of faith when it drives us to the only source of hope, the only one who has answers. We complain to God ultimately because we know that he is our only hope, but we do not complain about God because he is perfectly holy, righteous, and good, and he does, as Scripture says, all things well. Biblical faith clings to truths about God. Considering what we learned from the prophet Habakkuk this morning, let us understand that faith responds in three ways. Number one, realize that the sovereign God is working behind the scenes in ways that you would not believe. 
In verses 5 through 11, the sovereign God answers the question of his prophet. And, and God makes it clear that he is not indifferent to sin. He is not insensitive to human suffering, but he is working in ways that the prophet cannot see. Makes it clear in verse 5 that what the prophet needs is a glimpse of the big picture. He basically says to his prophet, look beyond the present to the future. Look beyond your own land to a foreign nation. God was at work behind the scenes. Look among the nations, verse 5, and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. The prophet could not and would not be able to understand how God could let the wicked Babylonians punish his people Judah. But that's what God was doing. He makes it clear in verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I am making them powerful. Chaldeans, it's another name for the Babylonians who, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, were an an ethnically diverse group that gained independence from Assyria in 626 B.C., and they continued to increase in power, ultimately then to defeat Assyria. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They were fierce and impetuous. They marched through the earth. They took everything in their path. Verse 7 says they were dreaded and fearsome. And they were an authority unto themselves. They, they recreated justice in their own image rather than God's. Their justice and dignity go forth from where? From themselves. This is not all that dissimilar from the social justice movement of our day. Marxist ideologies are being propagated under a culturally accepted name. But this is not God's justice. This is a man-made justice that doesn't square with Scripture. Biblical justice is rooted in God's righteousness and law. Last year, the elders read an excellent book that I commend to you, if this subject is of interest to you, called Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. And the author, Scott David Allen, explains biblical justice this way. Justice requires a fixed point of reference that exists apart from man-made laws and our beliefs about what is good and right, a standard to which even the most powerful are held accountable. Without this higher law, justice is arbitrary and changeable based on whoever wields power. 
The author then goes on to quote John Kelvin as saying, God's law reveals God's character. He is the plumb line who determines what is good and right for all peoples, for all eras. And because God does not change, this standard does not change. God is the revealer of truth. Man is in no place to reinvent truth or to redefine justice. But that's what the cultural elites of our day are doing according to their socialistic beliefs. They are doing what the Babylonians did. They created their own justice that went forth from themselves. They were powerful, verse 8. The Babylonians were a powerful military force. They acted swiftly. They devoured their prey. Verse 9 says they were violent. They took many captive. They scoffed at kings and rulers. They laughed at every fortress. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on. But from God's perspective, they are guilty. Guilty men whose own might is their God. See, Habakkuk needed to understand God's plan for chastising his people Israel or Judah. Sin would not go unpunished. God is making that clear to Habakkuk, that the evildoers will be judged. And verse 11 makes it clear that God is the one behind this. Even though there are wicked men carrying it all out, God is not responsible for the sin, but he is responsible for using it to accomplish his work. In the mystery of God's sovereignty, the evils of men and Satan are ultimately used to accomplish God's good. This is something we take by faith. We cannot always see it. Rarely do we see it. Those who defy God's law will be held responsible. They will be judged. But in the meantime, as it was in Habakkuk's day, God is working behind the scenes. He's working behind the scenes of evil and injustice in this world to accomplish his master plan, which is to bring many people to the Savior from every nation of the earth. This is his master plan to get the gospel spread to the ends of the earth so that many from every tongue and tribe and nation will come to know Jesus and be a part of that eternal chorus of worship. There's a second response of biblical faith. Biblical faith needs to recognize that the holy God employs unbelieving leaders and wicked nations to discipline and purify his people. 
Habakkuk asks, how can you, holy God, use people of iniquity? He says in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? How can you, the everlasting God, the holy God, employ wicked people to accomplish your will? And yet he does. And so Habakkuk reminds himself of the covenant that God made a covenant. He speaks of the covenant-keeping God. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Habakkuk tells himself the truth in this time in which he is struggling. You, God, are everlasting, faithful, true, and holy. You are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. And so why do you idly look at traitors? He says, why do you remain silent when the wicked just sweep up your people? God knows what he's doing. God is sovereign. Daniel 1 reveals just one example of some fish that were swept into Babylon's net. But even here we see that God was accomplishing something behind the scenes through an unbelieving leader and a wicked nation. In Daniel 1, we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Nebuchadnezzar plundered God's temple in Jerusalem and then took the vessels and brought them to his own idolatrous temple. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And you know who was among those youths? Daniel, the prophet. And there were other youths. Only three others are named, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But God used Nebuchadnezzar to bring chastisement to Judah and to bring Daniel to Babylon, where Daniel had a profound ministry. Daniel 2.21 reminds us that God is sovereign over the nations. His providence rules over the lives of his people. Daniel 2.21, it is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. You see, 
God has sovereign control over the political scene. And he raises up some leaders and dethrones others whether or not they believe in him, whether or not they are followers of Christ. I hear Christians say sometimes, man, if we just had a Christian president, if we just had Christian judges in the Supreme Court, if we just had a Christian congressman, if we just had Christians in every place in the government, and you know what? God doesn't need that. He'll put his people in places where he wants them, but he has sovereign control even over unbelieving leaders and uses even a king like Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his will. Let us rest in this. Let us have confidence in this. We don't have to get all worked up, (laughs) driven by fear. When things don't go the way you want them to go at the ballot box or anywhere else. God is sovereign. He's in control. And he even uses, unbeknownst to them, even uses unbelieving leaders to accomplish his will. For decades, I have prayed that God would change the makeup of the Supreme Court. I didn't know if he would do that in my lifetime. The church I pastored for over 20 years in Wisconsin, we prayed that way all the time. We didn't know if God would do that in our lifetime, but we just prayed that because we saw in Scripture that God is sovereign. He lifts up some leaders and he dethrones others. And we trust him. We don't need to trust our government leaders. That's a pretty foolish thing to do to begin with. We trust the God who is sovereign over it all. There's a third response of biblical faith. Rest in the righteous God whose justice will be carried out in his appointed time, not ours. After he describes how Babylon is dragging away the people of God and sacrificing to their idols, Habakkuk asks another question in verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk says to God, is is Babylon going to do this forever? Will this evil go on forever? And God's answer is found in chapter 2, which you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Why, 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 Lord? And how long, Lord? We need to understand that the righteous God will carry out his justice in his appointed time. So when our eyes, excuse me, when our, my kids love it when my voice cracks while I preach. They tease me about it. (laughs) 
They tease me about it all the time. And I love them for it. But when our eyes are only focused on the evil in this world, then we will have the same questions, but we won't have the same answers that we rest in that Habakkuk had. How long, O Lord? How long will evil triumph over good? How long will the wicked prosper? How long will good be called evil and evil called good? If we ask those questions without the faith of Habakkuk, then we won't have the answers. But if we cry out in lament like Habakkuk did by faith, embracing the sovereign God, then we are comforted by his character. Let's remember that God's ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. When last Friday at 10.10 a.m., the Supreme Court handed down the overturning of the 1973 decision which legalized abortion on demand across all 50 states, God was at work behind the scenes. Forty-nine years, five months, two days, and 63 million babies later, God answered the cries of millions of his people over the last five decades. He was working Behind the scenes, his law was honored. True justice was carried out last week. And let me confess to you, brothers and sisters, that I lacked faith. Never in my lifetime did I think we would see this. But God was working behind the scenes. And he is the one to be praised. I had preached for it. I had prayed for it. But I was surprised on Friday. If someone had told me a year ago that this would happen, I don't think I would have believed it. But now think of your own personal life. Think of your own personal struggles. Think of what you have been praying for for years and years. Perhaps it's the salvation of a loved one. Perhaps it's the reconciliation of a broken relationship. Perhaps it's a hurt that you have a hard time even talking about. Know this. God is working behind the scenes in ways you wouldn't even believe if he told you, waiting for the day when he will unveil it and your heart will rejoice. Your heart will be filled with indescribable joy because God took you through that valley and he grew your faith. God is merciful to us. He's patient. And his patience is so great 
because his love for the lost is so great. Jesus, his second coming hasn't been stalled. It's not postponed. The Father knows everything. He's got it all under control. But before Jesus comes again, the heart of God is filled with long-suffering and longs for more and more people to come to the end of themselves that they might embrace Jesus as all that they really need for the deepest needs of their hearts. So let's continue to cling to the character of God. That's what biblical faith does. When we can't see God working, believe because of his character that though his hand of providence is invisible, he is at work. Let's pray. Father, we give you honor and glory for the fact that you are working. You're not just working in, uh, on the big macro level of the world and the nations or even our nation. You are working also in the micro of our lives. Things that we perhaps think are too small for you to care about. Things that perhaps we have wept over for years. Things that we long to see you do. But oh God, thank you for giving us in your word the voice of lament, models of lament in scripture of godly men and women who cried out to you and you heard and you cared and you listened and you answered not in our time not in their time and you don't always answer in our time but we know that your time is always best and so, Father, whatever burden is on the heart of every person here today, each and every person has a burden in their mind right now that they're crying out to you about. Would you hear them? Would you hear us as we sing this prayer to you for the glory of Christ? In whose name we pray.